Let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelation, the second chapter. We read verses 10 and 11, but I wanted to say a few more things about verse 10. The second and third chapter of Revelation cover the uh, letters to the seven churches. We've already dealt with the church of Ephesus and the church of Smyrna. And verse 8 was the church of Smyrna, if you'll look at your Bibles. Revelation 2 verse 8, and that means myrrh. This church went through much persecution, much suffering, and uh, they were encouraged to stand the test and trial. In verse 10 it says, For none of these things which thou shalt suffer, fear none of these things which those things which thou shalt suffer. Be, behold, the devil, <laughs> Brother uh, Nichols mentioned the devil a little bit ago in this poem, The devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried. They were encouraged here to stand the trial and testing. And ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. In our last lesson, we mentioned the crowns that were available for Christians. Remember the incorruptible crown, the crown of righteousness, and the various ones. There were five of them I gave you in our last lesson someone wants those later at some other time, I can give them to you. But I said I would remark on, and you shall have tribulation ten days. This tribulation for this local church, as well as the churches having tribulation, is symbolical of all the churches and the tribulation that they go through. But these these ten days here refer to ten, they doubtless refer to ten various periods of persecution under ten Roman emperors from Nero to Diocletian, which ceased by mandate of Constantine. Now then, <clears throat> you have these ten persecutions, ten primitive persecutions. If any of you have ever read Fox's book of martyrs, he points out these ten persecutions. And I will just give you a gist of what is said there. He elaborates on these ten persecutions much more than I have written down to give you. But I'll give you the date and the and the Roman emperor. You know, Rome was in power when Jesus uh, was born and when Jesus and before. And remember the uh, the the persecution that they went through in the days of Jesus, even. And so we find that here, I want to give you the continuation of these. Now, Nero, first of all, in A.D. 67, this covers a period of time from A.D. 67 to about A.D. 303, the first two or three centuries after Christ. So, Nero burned Christians in the imperial gardens, and Paul and possibly Peter were martyred during that time. And that's A.D. 67. In A.D. 81, Dominican commanded all the lineage of David, just like the Herod tried to get rid of baby Jesus because it was the house and lineage of David. Dominican commanded all the lineage of David to be put to death. And the Apostle John, the one that wrote the book of Revelation, was banished to the Isle of Patmos. And many thousands were slain during that period of time. And there, the third Roman emperor was Trajan, 
108 A.D. And he demanded that Christianity was an illegal religion and he refused they because they refused to sacrifice to the Roman gods. The Romans had many gods, even from the Old Testament era. And many crucified were crucified and they were crowned with thorns and spears run into their sides in imitation of Christ's passion, of Christ's sufferings. That was in Trajan's time in 108 A.D. And then Marcus Aurelius Antonius, he had burned Polycarp alive. He was offered his freedom if he would curse Christ and deny Christ. He was 82 years of age. But he said that he had served the Lord for 82 years. And had received nothing but good. And he says, can I curse my Lord and Savior? And he would not do it. And he was burned at the stake. Then we have Septimus. The fifth one was Septimus uh, Severus. And 192 A.D. And many martyrs were daily burned, crucified, beheaded, and torn to pieces by wild beasts. This was a great time. That's why you find it in this church these ten periods of, of, uh, of church sufferings, <clears throat> that's why you find it in this one that is called myrrh or, or uh, Smyrna. That's verse 8 of chapter 2. Because all of these are indicated that this will be a period of suffering. There will be ten uh, days. And days in the Bible does not always refer to literal days like we consider a day and a night. Just like the hour of Christ is... Jesus says, mine hour is not yet come. It was not just an hour. It was the time of his sufferings and death. The whole time. When he referred to mine hour. Well, days have the same way of, of reckoning. We know there are literal days and nights. But in this case, we're talking about periods of time. And then, uh, under Maximinus, Maximinus, in 235 A.D., there were many prominent Christian leaders that were put to death. 249 A.D., this is number 7, that you have Decius, and he determined to exterminate Christianity, and multitudes perished under most cruel torture. The eighth one is in 257 A.D., and it's Valerian, and uh, more severe than the one before him, Deus, and he aimed at the utter destruction of Christianity. Look at what all these people went through. And Aurelian, in A.D. 274, he beheaded Felix, bishop of Rome, and another of the uh, one leaders was tortured and beheaded, and he was murdered by his own servants. <clears throat> and a legion of Christian soldiers, a legion of Christian soldiers were 6,666 men put to death. And then Diocletian was the last one of these ten Roman emperors until A.D. 303. And for ten years, Christians were hunted in caves and forests. They were burned. They were thrown to wild beasts. They were put to death by every torture cruelty could, could, could devise. <clears throat> and it was a resolute, determined, systematic effort to abolish the Christian name from the face of the earth. And yet we still have the Bible and we still have Christians, don't we? But uh, 
Back in our text now, and just to give you a gist of what we said, in Revelation 2 verse 10, Jesus said to this church of Smyrna, and it's mentioned in verse 8, but verse 10 says, Fear none of these thing, of those things <clears throat> which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. And he says, Be thou faithful unto death. We know that the, this speaks of the martyrdom that would take place in those ten days, or those ten periods of persecution. And Jesus says, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. In verse 11, he sums up this second letter to the church of Smyrna, the one to Ephesus, and now Smyrna. And he says in verse 11, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be heard of the second death. He's saying here, you may be killed and martyred, but the second death will not bother you. The first death is the death we die. But the second death, and we gave you a reference to that in our last lesson, is Revelation 21, I believe it's verse 8, and it tells us that the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, the whoremongers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We're told that that judgment is the second death. I believe that's Revelation 21, verse 8. Now, <clears throat> is it, is it, am I correct? Somebody might check me out and see. Okay, now then. Uh, we want to get into the next church. Revelation 2, verse 12. This is the third one of the churches. We had Ephesus in verse 1. We had Smyrna in verse 8. We have Pergamos in verse 12. And we have a letter. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. So he's saying that the Word of God, the Word of God is, listen, Hebrews 4.12, is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so here, Jesus is seen as the one that hath the sharp sword with two edges. So His Word is cutting, just as a sword is cutting. And it cuts both ways. And this is the way Jesus is introduced to this church of Pergamos. Now, Pergamos, we said before, means a thorough marriage we're going to find out that it was wedded, the church was wedded to the world. It became uh, excessively and exceedingly worldly. So, if the devil, you remember we just discussed what the devil was trying to do through persecution to the church of Smyrna. If he could not accomplish his purpose by persecution, he would just say, I'll back off and I'll just... I'll get the church wedded to the world and then I'll accomplish my purpose. That's His same tactic is in, in, in the world today. If he cannot persecute the church and destroy it, he'll make it very worldly. And he says, I'll just destroy it that way. So, a marriage to the world. And that's what you find in this church of Pergamos. And we'll see that it's true as we deal with the verses. So the devil has many attacks upon Christians. If he can't do it one way, he'll try to do it another. So, as we said, he couldn't defeat Smyrna 
by all the persecution that came against it. So he says, now, well, I'll try to deal with the churches in another way. And Jesus is writing to the angel of the church. The angel or the messenger or actually the pastor of this church so that he will give the message to the church. Now, a pastor has a great deal of responsibility toward God. In the book of Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, it says to Paul is writing to the Hebrews. He says, obey them. This is Hebrews 13, 17. Listen carefully. Obey them that have the rule over you. The word rule means the guide. The guide or the charge. They're charged to guide and to lead and to feed as a shepherd, under shepherd. And it says, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls. Now listen, here's the responsibility. As they that must give account. You see, I have to give an account as to what I say to you and how I lead you as as Christians. That they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. So the pastor is responsible to do his work so that he may have uh, acceptability with God and faithfulness toward God and... uh, truth toward God so that he will not be responsible for doing the wrong thing, but the right thing. That's why our work needs to be taken absolutely serious. And so we have to rightly, we're to rightly divide the word of truth. We cannot lead you astray or rest the scriptures or twist them or make them to mean something that they do not mean. Paul tells, uh, I mean, Peter tells uh, uh, the under shepherds in the book of First Peter chapter 5, Listen, in verse 2, well, let's read verse 1 and 2. He says, The elders which are among you, I exhort who am also an elder, Peter says, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. This is 1 Peter 5, verse 1. Verse 2 says, Feed the flock of God. Now, the word feed means to rule or to guide as well as feed them upon the Word. It says, Feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, Not by constraint, but willingly. Not for filthy lucre, that means for money. But of a ready mind. And then he goes on to say, Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. Verse 4 says, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. And that's what we call the under-shepherd's crown. Now then, look in Revelation 2. Verse 12 again, we've shown you that the angel and to the angel of the church or the messenger of the church or the pastor of the church in Pergamos write, these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. And we said this represents the word of God. Jesus has that word. Remember the vision John had in the first part of the uh, in part of the first chapter where it said out of his mouth goeth a sharp two edged sword. And so he's presented to this church in this way. He's presented to each of these churches in a different way. The church of Ephesus, he was the one that walks amidst the twelfth golden, uh, seven golden candlesticks. That's in verse 1. The church of Smyrna, in verse 8, he says, These things saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive. To this church of Pergamos, in verse 12, he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. 
So Christ presents himself to this church in this way. Now look at verse 13. He says, I know thy works. He knows all about all the works of every church. And it's recognized by the Lord. And he says, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Satan was having a great deal to do with trying to corrupt this church and make it more worldly. And Jesus says, I know what's going on here. And he says, even where Satan sees this, but see is, but he says, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not, not denied my faith, even in those days where an Antipas my, was my faithful martyr who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. He's talking about the fact that in spite of the persecution that we read about in the early the earlier lesson of Smyrna, the church just before this, in spite of that, he's saying here that they he knows their works, and he, he says that they hold fast his name, and they have not denied his faith, my faith. This was very commendable, that they would do this. They, they would hold fast Christ's name, and they would not deny the faith in the midst of persecution. Now then, he, he commends them for that. But then he goes out on down and he finds the problem of this church of Pergamos. And it's just as we said earlier, it's a thorough marriage with the world. In verse 14 he says, But I have a few things against thee. And he begins to talk about them. And the first thing he says, Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. The doctrine of Balaam. I want you to mark that, the doctrine of Balaam. Who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. This false doctrine. Here's a warning against false teachers. And Balaam uh, tried to employ the uh, Moabite women to seduce the men of Israel. We'll go back in history and show you that in the book of Numbers. And this was what corruption that this doctrine of Balaam was doing in this church of Pergamos. Now then, uh, there are three things. I want you to look at two references with me. Turn back to the book of Jude. It's just one page back probably in your Bible. And turn back two or three more pages to 2 Peter chapter 2. Let's look first at 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 15. It's just a few pages back. 2 Peter 2 verse 15. He's speaking here, Peter's speaking of those which have forsaken the right way, you have it? And are gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozar, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. In this verse you have what? The way of Balaam. Now mark that, the way of Balaam. Now then, look in Jude, and it's right before the first chapter of Revelation. Jude, verse 11, right before the first chapter of Revelation. Jude, verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam. Mark the error of Balaam for reward. So in Second Peter, you have the way of Balaam. In Jude... Verse 11, you have the error of Balaam. Now back in our text, 
Revelation 2 verse 14, you have the doctrine of Balaam. Isn't that peculiar? So, you have people that fall in the way of Balaam, and then they follow the error of Balaam, and then they promote the doctrine of Balaam. You see, you don't fall all at one time. It's progressive. It's progressive. You start walking with the counsel of the ungodly. Psalms, verse, chapter 1, verse 1. Listen. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not, you start out, walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. You have those three progressive steps. You're becoming more corrupt all the time. You have the way of Balaam, the era of Balaam, and then the doctrine of Balaam. You have a man walking after the... Walk, blessed is the man that walketh not after the counsel of the ungodly. Psalm 1, verse 1. Nor standeth in the way of, sin, way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. You see, you walk with them. You stand with them. That's following the, the era of them. And then what? Sitteth with them. You taught their doctrine. It's kind of a progressive thing in the life of people. So, you know the way to... Do away with falling for these cuffs. Don't let them get the foot in the door. Don't give them one chance. Because that's the first. The way of Balaam. Then the air of Balaam. And then the doctrine. That's the way people fall into cults. Just gradually. A little bit at a time. Someone says, well, don't you listen to them? Not at all. I don't want to listen to them. When I know their doctrine's wrong, from study and from from the fact that uh, you can recognize it, you you're well informed about it. You don't have to say, "Well, I'm going to see if they're right." You ought to order, you should already know whether they're right or wrong. If you know what God's word says, you should already be established and become established in the word of God and in the doctrines of grace and of faith, so that you will not fall for those cults round about you. And there are plenty of them, aren't there? There are plenty of them. So, the thing about it is, don't give it a chance. Now here, back in our text, he says in verse 13, you have revelation. Always hold your place where we're studying. And I hope I don't take you too fast. I could go a lot faster. I could give you the history of these these churches and the places they are and the cities themselves. And it has a great deal of bearing, but you can read that in uh, many commentaries at length. And it is all very important. But my purpose is to try to give you a simpler understanding of these and deal with them as we go along. Instead of telling you what Pergamos is and what kind of city it was and how many thousands of people were there and what it was given over to and the idolatry that went on there, there's a lot of details that are very meaningful and good. And each one of them, you could preach a whole sermon on every one of them. In fact, you could preach many sermons on one one. Uh, uh, one of these churches. But that's not what I'm going to do. I'm trying to unfold it verse by verse as we go along. Without making it too complicated. Now then, let's look at this. Verse 13. I know thy works, Jesus says, and where thou dwellest, uh, even where Satan's seed is, and, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, and is even in the days when he, there was a faithful martyr, Antipas, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. The devil had a big hand in this. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. 
Now, the doctrine of Balaam. Balaamism is worldliness. Trying to mix God's people with the world. If you go back, there are references. Let me give you Numbers chapter 25, verse 1. Let's see if we can get some of these. Numbers 25, verse 1. It says, And Israel abode in Shechem. The people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. Uh, I'm not going to read all of... Well, let's read verse 2 and 3. And they called the people unto the sacrifices their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself to Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. I want to try to give you the specific verses that will show you something about them. In chapter 30, verse 16 says, Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam, listen, through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So it was through his counsel. So we said the way of Balaam, the era of Balaam, and the doctrine of Balaam. And it caused God's people of old to turn to idolatry and to turn to adultery and many other things that were involved in it. There's reference after reference we could go to, but I'd like to progress along in Revelation chapter 2. You got your place there? Okay. Now then, let's look at verse 15. Jesus said in verse 14, but I have a few things against thee. In verse 15, here's another one of the things. Look at verse 15. So hast thou also, here's another thing, also, them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. We, If you'll remember, we spoke of that earlier in the church of uh, Ephesus, the very first church that had lost their first love. Now in verse 6, it says, in verse 6, I want you to notice two things. Look at verse 6 and verse 15. Okay, verse 6 says, to the church of Ephesus, he says, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The deeds of the Nicolaitans. Underline that. In verse 15 says, to the church of Pergamos, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine. What is it? The deeds and the doctrine. See that? First people start doing like other folks do. Then they start teaching and believing like other folks do. See how easy it is? That's the way, that's the way it happens. They'll say, well, I just do like those folks. First thing you know, you'll be doing like those. Uh, you'll be teaching like those folks as well. When you start doing like them, you start teaching like them. That's the pattern. And so, the first church that was spoken of, the church of Ephesus, it's, they, they followed the deeds. They had the deeds of the Nicolaitans in their midst. This church of Pergamos held the doctrine. So, hast thou also them that hold the doctrine? There were some of those that held the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, we gave you what they were. N-I-K-A-O. The first part of the word, and then laos, L-A-O-S, is the last part of it. The first part means to conquer, and the second means the people. So it means a conqueror of the people, to conquer the people. And we said in our lesson when we were first teaching that it was a class 
a priestly class that wanted to lord it over God's people. We explain that every believer is a priest now in the sight of God. Peter tells us that we're a kingdom of, uh, of priests. That we're, we as believers are priests. And all of us can go divine, uh, into the divine presence of God. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was rent in the midst from the top to the bottom, about 60 feet high, about four inches thick, so that two yoke of oxen could not separate if they were pulling in the opposite direction, teams of oxen pulling in the opposite direction, could not rend that veil, and yet God rent that veil, not from the bottom up, but from the top down. And opening up the way into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, for everyone, wherein it was only open to the priest of old in the Old Testament days. So that every believer now can enter in upon the merits of Christ and of His death on the cross and of His shed blood into God's very presence. And that's why the Bible tells us to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy to find grace and find grace to help in time of need. We have that privilege that have that opportunity. Now then, look at this. It says, Thou so, verse 15, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. God says, I hate this priestly class that tries to lord it over God's people. God doesn't want any of His people to be lorded over. In fact, if you remember that passage we read in the book of 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter is instructing the elders, and he says in verse 3, Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. Even the preachers, the bishops, the teachers, the pastors, the elders which are among you. He says, I don't want you to be uh, lords over God's heritage, but in samples to the flock. Boy, if we had that today, if we had that today, we'd get rid of a lot of these uh, high ups, wouldn't we? Everyone would feel their place under God, and you wouldn't have it have somebody trying to lord it over God's people. And the Lord Himself is no respecter of persons, so why should you and I be? And Jesus said to those that wanted a high position of the apostles, He says, "Listen." He that is greatest among you, let him be what? The servant of all. That's what he said. He says, Whither is greater? He that sitteth at meat, the man that sits at the table and is waited on, or the one that serves? And they said, Well, you know, the one that serves. Jesus said, Is not the one that, that uh, sits at meat greater than the one that serves? And yet Jesus says, I'm among you as one that serveth. He's one that sits at meat and holds the place of prominence and expected to be served. And he says, The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life a ransom for many. All right, let's look at the next verse now. It says in verse 16, he tells the two things, Balaam and the Nicolaitans that were wrong with him. He told in verse 13 that they held fast his name and had not denied his faith. But there were some among them that had not done this. And he says in verse 16, Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with a sword of my mouth. How, what's the way to fight evil? What does the sword of his mouth represent? The Word of God, doesn't it? Hebrews 4.12 says... Uh, the Word of God is, listen carefully, quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit. Look, soul and spirit. That's a very fine distinction. Of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Jesus is the one that had in his mouth the sharp two-edged sword. Or his word that comes out of his mouth is sharper than any two-edged sword. And here he says what? When I come and fight, I will fight against them with what? The sword of my mouth. I'll fight against them with the word. Words are powerful. And the word of God is quick and powerful. And if you and I are going to win the battle against the devil and put down evil, we're going to have to take the sword of the Spirit, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, which is the Word of God. And we, if you take the sword of the Spirit, the Spirit has to wield that sword. You and I take it, but we must do it under the power and inspiration or unction of the Holy Spirit. If we're to overcome. And Jesus overcame the devil's great temptations In Matthew chapter 4 and Luke 4. And he overcame what? By the sword of the Word of God. And every time the temptation came, Jesus would say, But it is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God. First thing he said, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then he says, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. He says, It is written, Then he says, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. Every time the devil threw a temptation at him, he had the answer, from what? From the Word of God. And by the way, from the book of Deuteronomy, establishing the fact of the writing of Moses and authenticating the the Scriptures in the Old Testament. Because it was quoted from the book of Deuteronomy. Now let's notice this. In verse uh, 17, he says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He repeats this time and again. He repeated in first and second uh, one of these letters. We're in the third one of the letters. Remember verse 12 started the third lesson. Started the third letter. We're still reading this third letter. It was to the church of Pergamos. And we're coming to the end of it in verse 18. We'll read, I mean, verse 17. And verse 18 starts a new one, another one. But verse 17 comes to the end of this letter to Pergamos. Verse 17 says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's stop there a moment. Remember when we told you that the churches, the letters to the churches, first of all, they're written to the local churches as individual churches, individual local congregations. They are written with a personal intent that the one that has ears in the church, the individuals, let him hear what the Spirit, the Holy Spirit says to the churches. Then we said that these churches also uh, are written to admonish churches throughout the years and even to this day and hour wherein you find these conditions exist. And then we said further that it's, that these seven churches represent Periods of church history down till the time of Christ's coming. And we're still in the church age. We're still still living in the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Even though these letters were written to the seven local churches that Jesus picked out for John to write to, 
expressing various conditions, things commended in each of them and things condemned in each of them and the way to deal with their problems and who it is that is walking in the midst of them and who has power and control over them and the messages they were to receive. And when you find these conditions exist in a church today, we're advised and admonished to do exactly what Jesus told these churches that had these problems to do. So you see those ways that the the letters were given? And here we said, by reading verse 17, He that hath an ear, this shows the personal aspect of these letters to the churches. He that hath an ear. So the individuals within the congregations are to listen. And he says this, Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Then he says, To him that overcometh will I give to eat. Here's the reward of overcoming these things, these problems that exist in the local church. He that overcometh, look, will I give to eat of the hidden manna. The hidden manna. This speaks of Christ. The, the food of, for the soul that only Jesus can give you. The food that comes directly from Him. Remember, He is that manna. Look in John chapter 6. If not, I'll read it to you. John, John 6 verse 48. He says, I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. John 6 verse 49. This is the bread, or this is the manna, which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. And this whole chapter, we could go back in verse after verse. You know, if you go back to verse 33, it says, For the bread of God is He, Christ, which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Verse 35 says, Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. And so on and so forth. You find it time and time again in this sixth chapter of John. So, hold your place in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. Look at it with your own eyes. He says, him that, To him that overcometh, the middle of the verse, will I give to eat of the hidden manna. Now look. And will give him a white stone. Going to get a white stone. You know, the Jews, when they'd go into courts of law, if they came out with a black stone, they wouldn't come out. They were condemned. They came out with a white stone. Here says, proof, I'm acquitted. It was proof of acquittal. It was proof that they were not guilty. Jesus says He's going to give us a white stone because we're not guilty. And the reason we're not guilty is Jesus bore the condemnation for us. That's why we're not guilty. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, it says, For what the law could not do, listen, and it was weak through the flesh, I believe this is uh, verse 3, for what the law could not do, let's, let's emphasize that, for what the law could not do, and it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and without sin, condemned sin in the flesh, Listen, that those that are justified and He gave Himself an offering for our sins might be justified in the sight of God and therefore get a white stone 
And no condemnation, there is therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. There's acquittal. And you read that in Romans chapter 8, verse 3. Let me read something else there. It says this, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin. The word for sin there means an offering for sin, or by a sacrifice for sin, condemn sin in the flesh. So, we find that uh, we're acquitted. We not only have the hidden manna to eat of, and we'll have, the reward is to the overcomer. But we have the white stone. And then he says, and a new name. You still have your place. Revelation 2, verse 17. 